Revelation chapter 21, if you have your Bibles with you this morning. Revelation chapter 21. Last week we began a journey through these last two chapters of the Bible. If the message of Revelation is the vindication of God and His people, that is that one day every creature will know that God was right all along, that everything He said was true, And that therefore, we who choose to follow him now, through his son Jesus, are also in the right. If the message is the vindication of God, of the Lord, as it says, and his people, God and the Lamb, and vindication of those who embraced the Lamb, then these chapters are the climax of everything that God is doing to bring about that vindication. We will be living forever with God in endless happiness and satisfaction, while at the same time, those who have rejected God, those who even this day refuse to believe the claims of God about the gospel of Jesus Christ will suffer endless torment, that is, the just punishment for sin against a loving and holy God. And the words of this text make that contrast explicit because vindication has both negative and positive implications. If someone is shown to be in the right, then somebody else is necessarily shown to be in the wrong. And John begins in verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And now the contrast. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What we're reading here is a description of that time when the final day of God's vindication has already arrived. Who is in the right and who is in the wrong has been revealed and the implications of being in the right or in the wrong have been realized in full. As I said last week, the big idea, I think, in Revelation 21, 1 through 8, this time of realized vindication, is that we can see three profound ways in which God will do away with our present reality, what you see as reality right now, it will be done away with, and he will create something new in its place. But this isn't just 
information about the future. We're not here just to you know, satisfy our curiosity about what's next. Because the Lord is revealing this truth to John. For the good of suffering believers, it is meant to instruct us and instructing us to change us, to give us the right perspective and behavior we ought to have right now. We should long for this coming time, but this coming time should make us wise about the present. So what are these profound ways in which God will take away the old and create the new? Well, last week we looked at the big picture of a new heaven and a new earth. We spent time looking carefully at what John says here just in verse 1. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. At the least, this means that the reality that we know now, planet earth and its position in our galaxy and our galaxy's position within the vast universe, our heavens that we now gaze at with all of its cares and activities, our history, our opportunities, it will all be gone and in its place will be a new reality, a new earth to stand on, a new heaven to gaze at, and no sea that threatens or divides. We spent a little time last week talking about why no sea. We're not certain whether this means all of the elements and atoms of the world will be destroyed and new atoms created out of nothing like God did when he uh, first created the world, or whether he's reconstituting, reconstructing what he has already created. But either way, it will be a completely new reality that ought to cause us to ponder what we're really investing our lives in right now. For the only thing that is going to end up passing from this life into eternity is our relationship with God through Christ and whatever comes out of that relationship. It's the only thing that's going to be left. It's the only thing that's going to matter. That means that the Lord's table that we're going to celebrate in a few moments here with its symbol of Jesus' body given for us so that we can be one with him and the symbol of the blood that was shed for us, paying for our sins, securing our forgiveness from the Father, it is the center of what really matters in this world. But there's another profound way that God will wipe away the old and replace it with the new. Not only will there be a new heaven and a new earth, but there will also be a new harmony with God a new harmony with God. In other words, the realization of oneness with God that we know is possible now that we are saved, but we don't experience it yet like we could, not yet anyway, this is coming. Because sin always gets in the way right now. And in our fallen humanity, our capacity to know God and to love God and experience God like we know and love and experience Him someday is compromised. I don't want in any way to say anything that I say this morning to give the impression that we can't draw close to God right now. We're told to in the Bible to draw near to God and He will draw near to us. We ought to be drawing close to God. Our desires ought to draw us closer to God. But what I'm telling you is that as close to God as you have ever felt as precious as his promises have been to you, 
as wonderful as that time you can remember when you really felt you were walking with God and knowing his joy and his love. Do you, you remember feelings like that when you felt you were really close to God? When you felt his confident and affectionate embrace like a true father? Whatever mountaintop experiences that you have seen before in the past, it will seem like a pale shadow or a shallow depth compared to the closeness that we will know when we actually dwell with God. In verse 3, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And then if you skip down to verse 7, God himself is speaking where he says, The one who conquers will have this heritage. That is the heritage of eternal life in verse 6. And he says, I will be his God and he will be my son. And then there's the contrast with those who do not know God. Or even worse, God does not know them. For those who have never had their sins forgiven through the death of Christ, all that is left to describe them is their sin. It's a warning to those who do not know God to turn to Him through Christ. And it is also a contrast that makes us appreciate a true relationship with God all the more. And I want to consider this new harmony for a few minutes this morning before we gather around the table. Notice in verse 3 that there are actually four ways that this loud voice from before the throne describes a new level of harmony with God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. These are mind-blowing statements. This speaks of God's desire to dwell with us. I mean, look carefully. This voice does not describe this new harmony as God's people dwelling with God. Rather, the emphasis is on the fact that God will dwell with his people. It doesn't say, behold, the dwelling place of man, of human beings, is with God. It says, the dwelling place of God is with man. I know we always frame it the other way around. We imagine what it's going to be like to actually live with God. And the scriptures talk about that, you know, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And, and we look forward to that day. But in this new harmony that God is describing here, he is, he is describing it as God's choice to dwell with us. And to make sure we don't miss this amazing truth, the voice says again, he will dwell with them. And then it says, they will be his people. And once again, it says, God himself will be with them as their God. The, the Greek text literally reads, and he, this God, with them will be their God. Now, I don't know what well-known person, what great political figure or accomplished artist or financial giant would make your adrenaline rush if you knew that person were coming to stay with you. I mean, a few months ago, uh, Joe Provenzano showed me a picture of his neighbor on a beach standing with George W. Bush. 
And Joe said, yeah, I found out after living next door to this neighbor of mine for a long time that he's best buds with the former president, like close enough to share vacations together. I mean, I would have been like, so we've been neighbors all this time, you know, and you've never mentioned the fact that George W. Bush could just sort of pop by, you know, just to say hi. I mean, you've never said this before. I mean, I went and repeated the story that Joe showed, uh, told me and told, him, told uh, about the picture to about a dozen people because I found out that I have a friend who has a neighbor who is best friends with George W. Bush. I mean, that's a big deal. Now, George W. Bush doesn't even know that I'm alive, but George W. Bush is good friends with somebody that I know who knows somebody else, and that's a conversation starter, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And again, I don't know what person... Uh, of high esteem in this world that would be greatly valued in your eyes. But I think you can imagine who would cause your life to go into a panic of excitement and preparations for their arrival if you knew that they were coming to actually stay with you. But God himself, our creator, think about that. The one who Isaiah says has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance. That God, our creator, our judge, our redeemer, the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, eternal, self-existing, holy, triune God, the one who declares in verse 6 of this chapter, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. That God, by whose most holy and righteous will, the whole universe exists, actually dwelling with us. We don't have words to describe this. But the meaning of this new harmony is not complete without understanding this relationship that we will share with our God. God's presence among us on the new earth could be the kind of relationship where we're sort of living in abject fear of God and where you know, we never really come to know him. But of course, it's not the way God describes the relationship that he promises to share with us. If you go down to verse seven again, God defines the relationship in this way. He says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Let that sink in for a minute. We think of God's coming to dwell with all of his people and everyone crowding around the manifestation of his glorious presence and being with with the Son of God and basking in the glow of the Holy Spirit once we're in the new earth. We think about that. And that in itself is something we cannot describe. But, But this new harmony is not merely God's immediate presence, but it's also a realized close relationship with him, a father-son relationships. God speaks these words literally. He says, I will be to him. That's singular. It's not just that he's there with the crowd and we're not, we're not recognized. I will be to him, God, and he will be to me, son. The word son does not indicate gender exclusivity, by the way. God is saying that we who dwell on that new earth as individuals will be personally in harmony with God as a father would be to his child. We will be in his mind. 
the creator of the universe, not just another creature, not just one of many children running around enjoying the new created world, not just uh, uh, you know, to think of, of God making everything for us. He will think of us as his son or daughter because he loves us and cares for us personally. We'll understand that in a way we've never had before. When we talk to him, it will not be from our imagination only as we struggle to believe that God is actually welcoming us to his throne through Jesus Christ. When we hear his will and his truth, it will not be merely something we hear and seek to understand and figure out how to obey. That's what we do now. But then we will have direct and unbroken access to God and know and comprehend his will for us. And we will marvel in overpowering awe at his beauty and goodness and truth. And what is more, this fellowship will remain unbroken for eternity. There will be nothing between us and our Father. No stain of sin, no unrighteous thoughts, no plans that will deviate from his will. We will know the true harmony of hearts and minds working as one as we finally know what it means to desire nothing but knowing God and his will. Nothing but to glorify him. Nothing but to praise him. Nothing but to live for him. We, we think about that now. We long for it now. We get a glimpse of it now. Then we will know. And it's something I don't think we can even begin to imagine. Now, I want to be clear about something. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, there is nothing, this is an amazing thing, there's nothing left that you have to do to bring about this change. It's going to happen. Jesus has already done it all. We, we don't have a doing kind of religion, right? We have a done kind of religion. Christ has done it for us. In fact, we already know about this harmony. The only difference is our experience of it our full realization of it in time. When Jesus came to earth to die for us, he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which said that a deliverer was coming whose name would be Emmanuel, God with us. Im-anu-el, literally, with us, God. Not Im-el-anu, with God, us. It means that God comes to us. I mean, our being with God is good enough. But it's God coming to us. God with us. Jesus made this a possibility. John 1.14 says, uh, the word that's Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to present the Father to us in all his glory and to make it possible for us to enter into a relationship with God, whereby he would come one day and dwell with us. The word you see there, the word dwelt, that's a Greek verb that means to pitch a tent, to tabernacle. And this word tent or tabernacle takes us on a whole journey through the story of the Bible. God tabernacled with Adam and Eve in the garden before they plunged themselves in all of their offering into sin. So God chose Abraham and the nation that would come from him to be the holy nation in the middle of which he could tabernacle 
Once again, that is why God gave Moses not only Ten Commandments when he went up to the mountain, but he also gave him the blueprints for the tabernacle so there would be a place where he could come and manifest his presence and dwell with his people. And he commanded that tabernacle to be set down right in the middle of this new nation of Israel, his chosen ones, his 12 tribes with three tribes on the north side and three on the south and three on the west and three on the east. And later under King Solomon, that tabernacle would become a more permanent temple. And God shared a relationship with his people, Israel, especially in that dwelling place where God was worshipped, only to the extent that they were able through their history to remain holy. But as you know, Israel was not able to remain holy because their hearts uh, were sinful and sin shatters relationships. So when the people sinned against God, their relationship with God was broken. Something had to be done in order for hearts to change so the relationship with God could be healed permanently. That's why Jesus came to tabernacle among us. His dwelling in our hearts by faith is God dwelling in us by faith. So those of us who are saved, who have trusted Christ, we already know that we have a relationship with God, that God is with us. But in this new harmony that relationship will be finally realized fully as God descends to actually dwell with his people once again. In fact, in Revelation 21.3, when that loud voice cries out, the dwelling place of God is with man, the word we read is the same that we read in John 1.14. The verse literally says, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will tabernacle among them. What Jesus did on the cross not only brought us to God, but it also brought God to us. In every stage of redemption history since the garden, God is closing the gap that exists between himself and his chosen one. The Shekinah glory of God, of the tabernacle, assured God of of his presence, but the tabernacle system with its, its compartments of the holy place and the most holy place actually kept people at arm's length. God was there, but they were kept back. When Jesus came, the Shekinah glory of God was enclosed in flesh, a genuine human being like us. God coming near in the person of Jesus Christ who embraced people, who ate with sinners, who died for sinners. In this last stage, the gap is finally closed. God comes to dwell in the person, in, in person with his people, embracing them as a loving father embraces his child. And just as God's dwelling among his people is something that was begun through Christ, the father-child relationship is also something begun through Christ. I'm going to just take a second to look at this text in Romans 8 because it connects so well with what John is saying here in, John chapter, in Revelation 21. In Romans 8, Paul speaks of this father-son relationship that we share with God as a present reality. We don't know it fully yet, but we share it right now. Paul writes, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. We're already sons. There's nothing more we have to do to make this reality possible. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. By the way, Abba is not 
baby talk. It does not mean daddy in the Greek, okay? Just in case you were ever told that. Uh, it's actually Aramaic, and the term is a term of endearment, of strong love a child feels for a father. A mature child, an adult child would call his father Abba. So this expresses this warm relationship, this mature relationship that we can know with God as a father and a son. He says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. But even though we are God's son or daughter, we do not yet experience the full extent of that relationship. Later in the chapter, Paul says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first roots of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, there's a, there's a level of this that we haven't yet experienced. But we have the assurance that we will one day be glorified with the Father. In fact, reading a few verses later, Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. You can say that again. That's not just on earth, we'll, we'll get to a place where we feel a little better. And God does that sometimes. He gives us blessing on earth and we praise him for that. But we're looking at the end game of what he means when he says that all things will work together for good. Yes, they will. And we see that ultimate goodness in Revelation 21 and 22. And it's for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn, the first one among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He talks about it in past tense. It's because it's such a reality in the mind of God. He can speak of it in what we call the prophetic past. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a done deal. We will be God's glorified sons and daughters with direct, immediate access to the God who loves us and created us. Now, there is a terrible contrast that rears up as the reminder to us, as a reminder to us at this part of the text. God says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's their portion. That's their inheritance. And when we read this verse, it's almost like an interruption. Do you feel that way when you're reading through this text? I did when I started studying it. I mean, it doesn't seem to flow in the ideas. The focus is on the new heaven and the new earth. And we, we heard about the, the, the terrible judgment of God upon sin at the end of the last chapter. Let's not interrupt the great story now that we're reading with, with news of this. Why does God mention once again those who are not on the new earth but are suffering in the lake of fire? It, it's almost irritating to have to think about it. But it really does show the heart of God that even now in this prophecy, there is still a warning here to those who have not yet embraced Christ. Those who know Christ, who will finally know the full experience of a closer relationship with God and endless life, while those who have rejected Christ will know only endless death in the lake of fire. 
Grant Osborne, in his commentary on Revelation, observes that the sins mentioned here are a collection of sins mentioned previously in the book. It's sort of a rehearsal of a lot of things he's already said. It's a really insightful realization. The cowardly stands in contrast to those who conquer. Remember what conquering is in, in Revelation? It's to hold on to Christ and never let go, to remain faithful to him even unto death. The cowardly, by contrast, are those who do not resist the devil, who give into sin in the world because they don't have the strength in the Lord because they're not believers to withstand the evil one. The faithless are the unbelieving. They refuse to believe the gospel. The word detestable is related to the word for something that gives off a powerful stench. It refers to people who act so shamefully or hideously that people stand away from them in disgust or horror. Added to this trio of kinds of sinners are murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers. That's the word uh, uh, pharmakos. We get our word pharmacy from that. A sorcerer was one who would drug people to make them have illusions and live in the fantasies of those illusions rather than looking at reality. And idolaters and liars, their portion, their inheritance, what's coming to them is the lake of fire and sulfur that burns forever. This is the second death. You have to go far to find a starker contrast than the one we see between verse 7 and verse 8 in this chapter. But it serves to highlight not only that there will be no sin in the new earth, but to demonstrate just how new this new life in Christ really is. The punishment for the cowardly and faithful and detestable, the lake of fire. That was our inheritance also outside of Christ. But our destiny is made new because our harmony with God is made new. And we can rejoice in that harmony and celebrate it, and we should, as we gather around the table this morning. Father, we thank you.